1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, the orbit of my own PhD. On this episode, we'll be speaking with Isaac Soon about the publication of his first monograph uh, that um, evaluates the hints from the letters of the Apostle Paul that he was disabled in certain ways. Uh, We'll dive into all of that and uh, the interesting results of his uh, study in short order. But first, let me introduce my guest. Isaac Soon received his PhD from Durham University in 2021, and since this time has been Assistant Professor of Religious Studies with a focus on New Testament at Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick. Canada. Uh, Dr. Soon's research focuses on the intersection of New Testament and early Christian texts with disability studies, including a current project on conceptions of bodily normativity and the portrayal of early Christian figures in ancient literature. Uh, Previous work of Isaacs has been published in forums such as the Journal of Biblical Literature, New Testament Studies, Noventum Testamentum, Wigilii Christiani, and the Journal for the Study of Judaism, and his book about which we're conversing today is a revision revision of his PhD dissertation with the same title undertaken under the guidance of Dr. Jane Heath at uh, Durham University. Isaac is joining us today from his home base in New Brunswick uh, to discuss the publication of Uh, A Disabled Apostle, Impairment and Disability in the Letters of Paul, and it was published by Oxford University Press just a couple of months ago this year. Uh, So Isaac, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network.
0: Thanks, Rob. It's a real pleasure to be on here. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so uh, I don't know if there's any such thing as a typical seminary or graduate school experience, but if mine was any indication, you um, hit the nail on the head when you explain that most scholars tend to be wary or agnostic of Paul's thorn in the flesh, as he de- as he describes it in Second uh, Corinthians twelve seven, essentially saying that Paul seems to be disabled in some way, but in what manner we are unable to say with any certainty, given that Paul doesn't you know come out and tell us. Uh, right away. Uh, Mm -hmm. In that respect, uh, your book is a breath of fresh air, and I think even paradigm pushing because you claim that we can know at least some of Paul's disabilities. But I also sense that you're swimming against a current of scholarship, but you do so in a way that uh, is robustly argued and very maturely argued. Um, And uh, i'm not sure I follow everything that you put forward, but it will absolutely affect how I teach Paul in the future so. For this opening question, can I ask what attracted you to this topic of disability in the letters and the person of Paul the persona of Paul. And uh, perhaps also just how nerve wracking, it was to swim against the current if that assessment of uh, your position is anywhere near the reality of things.
0: Yeah, thanks for this question, Rob. Um, I mean, my graduate study when I went to Oxford before Durham, I wrote a thesis on the visual appearance of Paul the Apostle. <clears throat> so that's where things started really getting uh, kicked off, where I started thinking about Paul as an embodied person. Uh, I used to say, you know, he's not just kind of this traveling brain that uh, floats around the Mediterranean uh, ministering to churches, right? Uh, these These people, these characters, these figures, they're embodied humans and they experience embodiment in various ways. Uh, When I went to Durham, I was encouraged by my um, uh, uh, doctoral supervisor, Jane Heath, uh, to think really closely about disability, Um, because there had been a lot of scholars who had been working on in the past in the New Testament, um, some scholars like Canada Moss, uh, Megan Henning, um, uh, Louise Lawrence, Louise Gosbell. Paul had kind of been untapped for this very reason that you're uh, talking about. I'm I'm very honored that you call uh, my work paradigm pushing here. Um, uh, You you ask what it was like to swim against the current to think about Paul with a disability. In recent years, especially in the last decade or two, um, uh, there hasn't been much of a current because people are mostly agnostic about whether we can diagnose anything in the past for good reason, I think, um, because... Uh, As scholars have engaged with disability studies, I know we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, but as scholars have engaged with disability studies, there's um, uh, a hesitation to kind of retro-diagnose or diagnose things in the past, given the paucity of information we have, um, you know, I was looking at yesterday, uh, the kinds of steps that it takes to get an autism assessment in today uh, with mm-hmm. a psychologist. And, you know, you're talking about uh, scores of hours, uh, many different tests, many different questions, uh, or you're writing different things, there's observations. Um, and if that's for someone trying to diagnose a condition today, then how much more so uh, in the in the past when we have uh, very little data? So in that in that regard, it wasn't really as nerve wracking, okay. uh, Because I didn't feel like I was swimming against a current so much as I was kind of trying to start the current going. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I, a lot, for a lot of people who read the book, I I don't expect to convince everyone, um, but I I do hope that they have a good time, or at least when they've read it, they come away thinking about Paul differently. And I think that's the the big success for me.
1: Right. And uh, that absolutely is the case for me uh, as well. So uh, in your introductory chapter, you show that this general agnosticism, as you put it, of much recent mm-hmm. scholarship could kind of be a reaction to um, you know, the confidence, the clinical or diagnostic confidence of previous generations of scholarship that they had saying something about Paul's disability or disabilities. And even some modern scholars like Adela Collins have been willing to diagnose Paul with a surprising certainty uh, recently. So it's not... Uh, as if nobody has been been doing this. You may some, say something about that if you'd like. Uh, but um, what were the methodologies that underlined earlier these, these earlier speculations about Paul's disability? And what did they get right or wrong? And has there ever been anything approaching a consensus about the nature of Paul's disability? And how do you progress the state of the question further beyond what, uh, 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 what those have uh, pursued before you?
0: Yeah, Robbie, I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, there have been previous scholars like Adela Collins, um, uh, like, uh, you know, Anna Rebecca Zolvog, who've argued for for different conditions or possibilities. And that's certainly the case. The reason why I use the metaphor of stagnation is because um, the methods uh, deployed to uh, uh, mine that information or find that information have really just kind of reach the limits of their use. And so what was really required was a new kind of methodology, uh, which is why uh, my study turns to uh, disability studies to kind of rethink how we might think about disability uh, as a social phenomenon, uh, and then how, what kind of light that might uh, shed on uh, Paul. Uh, I really appreciate Adela Collins's work. She has a great chapter, especially in the reception history of Paul's thorn in the Fathers uh, in patristic literature. And she does settle, she draws on uh, a 19th century work by Max Krenkel uh, who argues, you know, based on a kind of a constellation of ideas between uh, two Corinthians um, uh, uh galatians 4 where paul talks about um you know him being welcomed by the galatians like an angel or a messenger of the lord um and then also uh the 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 boy with epilepsy um or who has uh, seizures in in the gospel of mark and crinkles crinkles uh um kind of bringing together of this constellation is really really ingenious um i just don't think that we can say with that much certainty and diagnose that condition uh, uh, quite so specifically. I have not seen or 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 known of any kind of major consensus. I mean, if you read the literature review uh, in my book on the chapter on the thorn and the flesh, I try to tap as much as possible. And there are just tons and tons of studies and they fall within different kind of trajectories. But there's not you know, one single kind of thing uh, which dominates or even comes close to a consensus.
1: I, I say this to students all the time. If there's one thing that biblical scholars do is disagree with one another. Uh, and so you'll find uh, different positions all over the map. And uh, exactly. yeah, it's no surprise that for um, something that is uh, As uh, you know, not as uh, (laughs) Paul doesn't tell us right uh, right out what his disability is, uh, so therefore it it figures that uh, scholars would go in different directions with it. Um, But um, so you have both impairment and disability in the subtitle of your book, and these are not just synonyms to pad a word count or something like that. Instead, um, uh, you are fully conversant with the contributions of disability studies scholarship in a way that exposes for me my own shortcoming in this in this realm. So, this, your book has educa- educated me uh, in this variety. Uh, can I ask in this case for a biblical studies audience that may be in the same boat as me, um, what's the difference between the two and how have these new models for understanding disability uh, changed the field of disability studies since the middle of the 20th century? And uh, can you maybe enlighten us with maybe a modern example or a historical example of how impairment and disability do not refer necessarily to the same phenomena?
0: Yeah, great, uh, great question. Very big question. Um, uh, I mean, essentially, uh, uh, in the past, disability thinking about disability and impairment in biblical studies is heavily informed by um, what we now call uh, the medical model, uh, which is uh, impairments and disabilities kind of overlap. Um, they're an individual problem, and it's something that is firmly within the realm of health sciences or biomedical sciences. So, you know, you, if you're if you have a disability, you go to a doctor. The doctor prescribes, you know, a medication or reduce pain or prosthesis or operations, all these things to kind of conform your body to a particular socially held ideal, which is, you know, a person should be able to have two legs, two arms, be able to walk, right number of fingers, right number of toes, you can see, uh, uh, speak, quote unquote, normally, all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, disability rights and um, disability theory and philosophy and theology had developed over the 20th century, uh, uh, the thinking about disability has moved away from just a medical model, which is kind of individual, uh, individualized to a more social model, which is thinking about the ways that uh, social systems and structures and architecture um, physically reinforce and actually disable people um so if you ever think about you know if someone's going to a concert or going to a university for example you know a, a beautiful uh, brick and mortar university uh but then you discover on the first day that your friend uh, or, or you yourself who is a wheelchair user can't access your class because there's no ramp or you have to go you know half a mile away to get to a lift or an elevator uh, uh, to get to your classroom um So the social model starts to think about, you know, the social systems, the things that are uh, are not only restricting uh, people whose bodies are different or or, or behave differently um, and experience disability, but also restrict them and exclude them. More recently, there has been a turn towards uh, a cultural model of disability, Um, and the way I define it is thinking more, uh, not only just in the way that um, people with disabilities are oppressed, um, but also the way people, uh, the way that people with disabilities also contribute to culture and to society in a variety of different ways. Um, One of my favorite disability theorists uh, is an Indian philosopher named Anita Guy, and she talks about how disability is epistemological, which is that it contributes to knowledge. Uh, It's not some kind of marginal thing. It's actually quite quite central for defining uh, aspects of our world. so that's kind of the shift there. Now, as far as the difference between uh, impairment and disability in my study, of course, there are overlap uh, overlapping aspects. I use impairment to talk about, you know, the kind of physical um, uh, differences from what might be considered a bodily ideal. Um, whereas disability, I talk about kind of the systems um, which are attached to those physical impairments, uh, which. Uh, are often uh, related to stigma or violence or exclusion. Uh, uh, So those kind of uh, social processes which Uh, Not only exclude but actually harm people with those impairments. Mm -hmm. Um, You asked for a a modern example or historical example of impairment and disability. Uh, 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 One example that I draw on from uh, Dr Rebecca Raphael who's Old Testament scholar who works in disability studies who's published in the past, Um, uh, but uh, they talk about uh, the the astigmatism, the need for glasses, right? Mm-hmm. So I have, I need glasses, so I'm actually technically impaired, but I'm not disabled by these glasses, right? I, I don't, I, uh, I, in particular, oh, exactly, Rob, you you have glasses <laughs> as well. So we we share this technical impairment with our eyes, right? But we're not disabled. We're, we're not restricted by access. We don't, uh, we're not excluded by this. Of course, in a particular culture, there might be the case, you know, if you're in a you know, a schoolyard, and someone is really actually physically violently hurting you or excluding you because you wear glasses, or because of your stigmatism, then there's a shift there. But that kind of illustrates, I think, is a really clever example of uh, the difference between impairment uh, and uh, disability, even though those two things overlap. For the sake of the study and clarity for readers, I distinguish between the two.
1: Uh, Thank you for indulging us in that way. And yes, I I have not lately heard, you know, the term four eyes or anything like that about glasses. It seems glasses are pretty much in vogue these days. So uh, 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 it's almost um, uh, uh, not a disability, but uh, uh, an augmentation or something like that. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, not to get us too far off track, but uh, thank you for uh, uh, giving us an example there. With all this background out of the way on um, on disability studies and uh, on the background of uh, uh, where scholarship has been with Paul, can you tell us what your basic thesis is and the method that you use to argue for it?
0: Yeah, so the basic thesis of the book is that um, we can know some things, as you said, some disabilities of Paul, um, and that those disabilities are relevant for understanding his writing. So it's not just kind of this... Um, uh a retrieval task in the past it's been you know kind of treating paul like a sideshow you know you go in to try and see uh you know paul's weirdness (laughs) and then that's kind of it the end goal is the weirdness um that's not what the study is about the study is about thinking about his body in the context of the mediterranean but then also thinking about his body and it's as resonances with the literature that he's generating um so You know, on the one hand, how he's dealing uh, with disability, how he reinforces disability, and and then also his exacerbation of his own disability, his actual, which actually leads to some problematic things, uh, um, almost self-harm, actually. Hmm. Um, So I think it it gives us cause. To think about a more complex portion, a uh, 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 way of thinking about Paul with disability, the method that I approach, I mean, I it's you, it's, like it's a combination of the social and the cultural kind of models, which is thinking about both the way that Paul's disabilities are. I use the word denormalized or basically kind of stigmatized and excluded and othered in the ancient world, but then also how his disability affects his writing. So that's the cultural aspect. And part of it is engaging with, um, uh, 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 part of a method by two disability, well-known disability scholars, um, uh, David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder, who talk about uh, biographical criticism, which is, I mean, they they apply it within the context of literature, but in the context of history, it's about retrieving figures in history whose disabilities have been overlooked. Um, The idea, the common idea or the stereotype is that disability is kind of on the margins, Uh, but actually... (laughs) Uh, disability is extremely, extremely prevalent uh, amongst ancient authors and writers. It's an everyday part of life. Mm-hmm. And whether people like it or not, eventually they will experience disability as, uh, as age comes. Um, so that's kind of my method and the kind of thesis of the book. And um, can you say something
1: uh, b- briefly before we go on about the disabilities that you unearth from um, from Paul in, in this method that you've called biographical criticism? And if I can say something about that as well, um, I, I enjoy that it wasn't just you know exegesis of a few limited passages, but instead you're trying to say something about the historical Paul himself, and um, also get us to think in different ways about Paul's entire uh, corpus and body of work. Uh, in light of his disabilities. So can you say what the disabilities are that you uncover uh, from uh, from Paul?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I, I uncover three disabilities in Paul. One is uh, demonization, which we'll talk about in a second. So I talk mm-hmm. about Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 mm-hmm. Corinthians 12, um, which I interpret well with, through his words, an angel of Satan. Uh, the second one is circumcision um, in the context of ancient Mediterranean. the uh, Ancient Mediterranean circumcision is uh, very much not a feature of typical and normalized and celebrated uh, male bodies. Um, And the last thing is uh, short stature. So uh, possibly dwarfism. I kind of teeter on it in the book, Um, (laughs) but definitely kind of short stature, shorter than the average person. Uh, And then this is something that kind of appears as a trope. And you're right that, um, you know, my work generally tends to resist over specialization so the text you know i could have focused the whole people ask you know why didn't you write the whole book based on just on the thorn and i think you i could have done that Sure. Um, and uh, i think the problem is when you get to that kind of minutiae level you can kind of miss the kind of uh overarching connections that happen when you at least in my study when you're exploring different um, uh, disabilities uh, in, in different areas, um, and I think it makes just for a much more robust uh, historical picture uh, of Paul. And I and I really welcome other people to uh, build on the study and uh, you know build on my mistakes and correct them for more detailed work. Um, but I'm happy to present something a little bit more uh, coherent and uh, uh, holistic there.
1: Wonderful, Isaac. And so, um, as we go on, we'll talk about each each of these three areas that uh, Isaac has identified that Paul um, may have been disabled. Um, his um, his method uh, also he, he writes he attends to the unseen disability of authors. So, uh, uh, like he said, it's not just a uh, not just a, 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 a laser focus on the thorn in the flesh and what that might have been. Um, anyway, um, before we get to that, um, Isaac, I, I'm wondering if you will contact contextualize uh, Paul and 2 Corinthians for us, maybe for listeners who do not have an intense biblical studies background. Uh, uh, Me, personally, I don't consider myself a Pauline specialist, but every time I wade in these waters and peel back the curtain uh, I uh, am reminded the complexity and the intensity of scholarship on uh, on Paul the, his authentic letters especially and why I didn't necessarily take that route myself <laughs> even though it was a wise choice even though I studied under a, 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 a you know a renowned Pauline scholar um, for listeners who are not familiar with the ins and outs of the Pauline letter collection and academic approaches to Paul and how key books, to your argument like 2 Corinthians and Galatians fit in with his career, could you could contextualize uh, Paul at this very basic level for us, and especially for 2 Corinthians, where Paul reveals his, uh, you know, enigmatic, but crucial for your argument, I think, thorn in the flesh. Can you tell us what's going on with his relationship to the Corinthian ecclesia at, at this point, and why this letter as we know it today is often understood as kind of a pastiche of uh, an artificial <laughs> bringing together of multiple uh letters that paul would have sent to corinth
0: yeah great question rob um uh paul's relationship with the corinthians is probably one of his most fraught uh fraught i know that you know paul gets quite heated and angry um uh, to say the least in his galatians letter mm-hmm. uh, but his letters to the corinthians display a really complex dynamic um because uh it, it in many instances in many cases it seems like the corinthians are uh, looking down their noses at uh, paul as this kind of uh, insufficient orator he's a really uh, angry person uh, you know his letters are angry but then his physical presence uh, is uh, uh, is weak that's uh, 2 corinthians 10 and so paul really struggles with this community he you know there's a lot of things he has to correct in his first corinthian letter uh, you know there's matters of incest and idol meat and uh, proper worship and some kind of order what's going on um and in the second Corinthian letter, it kind of comes to a head because, you know, this relationship seems to be breaking down. And as it's breaking down, Paul's emotions start to heat up. And this is where the uh, the pastiche of 2 Corinthians comes in for a lot of uh, critical scholars. Um, as that's actually not a consensus, but uh, some of the most critical scholars in the field uh, have argued that 2 Corinthians uh, is a composite letter, so a combination of um, a, def- a number of different Pauline letters that somewhere early on in the tradition, before our manuscripts have existed, uh, were was weaved together, woven together into a single text. I'm not of this school, but I can understand why it's the case, because in 2 Corinthians, the tone of the letter shifts very drastically, you know, between chapter one and then two to seven and then eight and nine and then 10 to 13. Um, So there's usually, you know, a five to seven fold division uh, between in this letter. And because Paul's language shifts, and of course, our task as the interpreters, it's hard to tell if Paul's being sarcastic or he's angry or he's being sly or he's actually, you know, eye rolling and kind of giving a a whatever answer, um, it's hard for us to detect that. And so one way that scholars have approached the tone and affect of the letter is uh, by marking it as a composite. Um, That's not how I approach the letter. um, But of course, my argument doesn't really depend on it being one full letter, because most of what I focus on is chapters 10 to 13. Sure, sure.
1: Okay, uh, very good. Thanks for giving us that background about Paul. Um, uh, you focus, as we said, on three of Paul's knowable disabilities, and so that's how we'll structure the rest of this conversation. Uh, let's, ta- let's start and go in the same order that you do and start with is thorn in the flesh and how you equate this with Paul's own understanding that he's either... Inhabited or affected by an internal demon of some kind. I'm straying away from the language of possession, which might come naturally to to people when you think about someone having a demon, but uh, Mm -hmm. that is absolutely not uh, the case that you argue for. Um, So what is the textual basis for the claim that you make? Can you get in the ins and outs of demonization or this angel of Satan that he uh, says that he's inhabited by? And from this perspective of demonology or angelology in the ancient world, uh, why do you think we should take Paul... Literally, uh, here at, at his word.
0: Yeah, a really important question. So in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 7, Paul says, You know, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, an angel of Satan, um, uh, to chastise me or to, to kind of uh, physically hurt me. Beat me up um, or something, right? Yeah, it, beat me up. It, yeah, you you like translate
1: it in different ways uh, to, yeah. you know, get around the whole uh, um, uh, uh, range of meanings of the Greek term.
0: Yeah. So, um, uh, Paul, the, one of the one of the tricks here is, is defining which is the metaphor. So often uh, in a post-enlightenment world, you know, kind of demystified, um, uh, de- disenchanted, I think, from this kind of other spiritual world, a lot of interpreters have understood um, uh, the angel of Satan, this kind of expression, clarifying expression that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, as a kind of metaphor. Um but in the ancient world where demons and spirits and angels and all these kind of, and here I use the language of uh, Annette Yoshiko-Reed, transmundane beings, these are realities for them, right? This this is not a disenchanted world. Um, we, I mean, we have uh, bowls, right? Aramaic incantation bowls, which trap demons in the kitchen. Um, you don't do that unless you physically are doing, you think it's, you know, something doing something. Uh, And of course, you know, etiologies between uh, uh, demons and illnesses and other disabilities. So it's not metaphorical for them. So I think uh, what I do in my work in in my chapter on this is say, you know, Paul's using this language of demons, and uh, or at least malevolent angels, and his hearers would have understood it as some kind of malevolent force, they wouldn't have thought it uh, uh, as some kind of metaphor or non literal uh, thing. And so I think, And I'm not telling readers that that's the kind of worldview they should have today, but I'm definitely saying in the ancient world for Paul and for his readers, this kind of language should be taken seriously because literally because the readers and hearers are going to take that language uh, literally for themselves.
1: One thing that you might have appealed to that you didn't, but uh, um, I'm going to bring it up just because it's in my uh, in my ballpark. Uh, sure. Her- Hermes talks about people being attended by an angel of wickedness and an angel of righteousness, yes, and
0: yes, they kind of yes. have to
1: decide who to listen to in yes. uh, that kind of regard. I, I, I use a, a slide from The Simpsons of where Homer has an angel and a demon sitting yes, on his yeah. shoulder, and say <laughs> that Hermes is the originator of this doctrine. But you know that's kind of facetious, but um, it it it. it speaks to a thought that some in the ancient world had that uh, you're kind of inhabited by um, a, a benevolent power and a malevolent power as as, sure. as you use the terms uh, Are there any difficulties that arise for you or as an interpreter or as an exegete? Um, with Paul's kind of simultaneous depiction of himself as being in Christ and uh, perhaps even literally having Jesus Christ in his own person, as he, you know, says later in that very same part of uh, Second Corinthians, while at the same time he is inhabited by an angel of Satan that was apparently given to him by God, as you put it.
0: Yeah, it's a, I mean, of course, there are huge problems. Uh, um, and I, I try to address it in the book uh, as best as I can. The the, I think the first problem starts with the initial knee jerk reaction to say those two things cannot exist because, Mm -hmm. you know, we stand downstream from 2000 years of uh, 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 anthropology and pneumatology and uh, and those, you know, all those things, Um, but for the first century. Like you said, I mean, I love that example in Hermes. about <laughs> I wanted to use it, but it, it, there was nothing about them being internal to sure. uh, the person. Sure, sure. Um, but we do have cases like in the Sarek uh, uh, Hayahad, like the uh, 1QS uh, uh, columns three and four, where it's the treaties of the two spirits. And the author's talking about these multiplicity of spirits, some good, some bad, internal to people's bodies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have texts from Qumran where the righteous are praying to God that, you know, these demonic forces don't penetrate their bones. Hmm. Um, So there is a sense, I try to push towards the sense that, you know, as analogs in ancient and second temple Jewish culture, uh, not the rabbis, but in, in second temple Jewish culture, there's kind of an understanding that these malevolent forces can kind of coexist. The question is, of course, in the context of Paul's theology, can these, this malevolent force coexist with the Holy spirit? And I think the, the what I argue for Paul is that um, this is not something that Paul himself has asked for, but it's actually something uniquely given by God somehow to uh, mature and um, uh, uh, make the power or the, what I argue is the Holy Spirit within him to mature it to kind of its ultimate stage. And this is where it you know, connects into his idea of the paradox of power and weakness. And um, and so I argue that it's an exception. I don't think it's problematic. And I'm happy to have my mind changed. But um, uh, uh, that's kind of how I, I view it. Of course, the language of possession, that's why I don't use it in the book. I distinguish between uh, kind of oppression, which is something we see, for example, in uh, Tobit, uh, uh, you know, so the, the, uh, the, the demon there. Um, As Modius uh, doesn't enter or inhabit someone's body, but oppresses someone's and the people around them, and then you have uh, uh, inhabitation or habitation, which is what I think Paul's dealing with with his thorn in the flesh, which is you know this uh, this demonic forces might be in his body. It might be an illness. It might be a disease. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't. I just don't think we can get. We have more information to diagnose beyond that, um, and that would be very much within the context of uh, uh, fitting with. Um, how the holy spirit can coexist you can be ill or sick and still have this holy spirit and then there's possession which is a complete loss of autonomy and we have examples of that from different spirits i don't think that's the case with paul we don't see that there so those are the kind of careful uh razor thin distinctions i make uh, for paul i try to find line and it's surprising for people but um I, i i hope i make a good case yeah, I think you do.
1: Um, so, uh, it's almost as if the, these are, you know, problems that arise for us that Paul didn't consider because they weren't problems for him, you know, the, the possibility of multiple inhabitation by different spirits. But in, yeah. but anyway, thank you for uh, uh, explaining that. Now, okay, uh, Isaac, we don't typically perform a, a version of a hard critique on the new books conversations, but um, I was uh, surprised that your discussion of the thorn in the flesh didn't loop in the sort of wider context of uh, uh the previous chapters of Second Corinthians, where Paul sort of responds to an attack about his bodily weakness. I see that kind of as generative of this uh, whole spiel that follows. Uh, um, so I'm wondering if you'll indulge in an alternate explanation, and this is from an amateur Pauline interpreter to someone who knows what they're talking about. So you can bat this away, uh, uh, hopefully, and uh, convince me uh, of your case. Um, but uh, I'm wondering how you might respond to it. So uh, for me, Second Corinthians uh, uh, um, 10 through 13. 13 all seems connected in my mind with Paul facing this uh, pretty significant blow to his authority. Uh, as we see also in 1 Corinthians, Paul is quoting people who have sent him a letter or have asked him a question, and then he goes on at uh, various lengths to uh, you know explain his uh, perspective but in this case um there seem to be you know some super apostles as he uh facetiously calls them he also calls them false apostles uh and you know some that uh are critiquing the weak bodily presence that he have or the coming of his body in the greek and also his speech being poor and you know this this kind of uh, arrows paul in a way that he has to you know defend his lack of training in that regard yeah And so all this is still on his mind as he rounds out the letter in chapter 13 as well. But anyway, I see this situation as generative for Paul to bring up his revelatory experience in the in the third heaven about which he refuses to speak in, you know, real clarity all the while attributing the reasoning uh, uh, for for his reticence to God. I think it's a clever way of kind of disguising or reframing his weakness, whatever it may have been, as sort of a divine gift that is given to him. Uh, I, I found a, little bre- a, f- a few breadcrumbs that were interesting to me in this regard. So you say that Paul inadvertently exacerbates the stigma of his weak bodily presence, um, but I wonder if he isn't kind of supplying a defense for his bodily weakness, or, you know, in quotes there, weakness, uh, as uh, his opponents are called. Calling it as compared to his bolder epistolary personality, which uh, his opponents are are, are scoffing at. The, you know, the, the the dichotomy between the boldness of his writing versus the weakness of his body is striking to uh, some in Corinth. You also offer an assumption that Paul has not concocted an oracle of God out of thin air, and that struck me in a certain way because you know I work in in the realm of revelations uh, as well, mm-hmm. and uh, I I'm not attributing this to this. You at all, uh, so uh, please don't hear it that way. But I basically see a um, or detect a canonical litmus test for re- ancient revelations, such that uh, Paul is unassailable, whereas someone like Hermas is uh, kind of a shyster. But you know whether we're talking about. Paul or Hermes or Paul's super apostle opponents, I would follow Harry Meyer's terminology that these are all basically religious entrepreneurs of a certain kind trying to convey a winning message for their audience and uh, they have at their disposal pretty limitless, non-falsifiable apocalyptic tools, you know, they can call upon, uh, you you know, oracles that may or may not have existed. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. so, we have a case here where Paul is reporting the words of God uh, um, uh, um, uh, right after he teases what what most interpreters understand as a thinly veiled report about his own heavenly ascent, and you can weigh in on that if you'd like. My question, finally, uh, this is the classic case of a a, a long comment and a question. Uh, Could Paul not just be concocting a cover story in his own self-defense against these super apostles including both his uh, you know paradisal revelations and a justification for his bodily weakness do you see any rhetorical connection from chapter 10 to 12 and how might you respond to this alternative take of paul's argument and most importantly i guess uh, would this be detrimental in any way to your understanding of paul's disability or the way that he depicts it
0: yeah, thank you for this robust question. Um, <laughs> I, I I definitely see a rhetorical connection between uh, chapter 10 and 12, and thank you for bringing that up. I mean, I, I probably didn't make as strong of a connection in the book, um, because chapter 12 just has so much, as you said before. Uh, the pauline scholarship um is uh oh yeah there's
1: meat on the bones in chapter yeah, 12 yeah, alone. there's
0: meat there's meat on the meat on the meat on the bones <laughs> um so uh <laughs> i apologize if that connection was not strong i definitely see a connection between a 10 a, a chapter 10 and chapter 12. um and i i don't deny actually that uh paul could these you know the i, I take your point about um Uh, Paul being unassailable and I think that you know there's a canonical bias there of course because you know Hermes is outside the canon so obviously (laughs) fabrication but then Paul you know he's he's a saint so he's uh he he wouldn't lie um uh so but I do take your point I I don't I don't think that it's he could be concocting the story absolutely I mean you know one Thessalonians he does go around saying you know this is the word of God Mm -hmm. um at the same time he does have kind of he presents himself I remember Margaret Mitchell saying this years ago you know he thinks he's Jeremiah absolutely you know he calls himself in Galatians you know I was knit together in my mother's womb I was like well I, we only know two prophets uh who are, who are like that uh Isaiah and Jeremiah so in this, it, it sets it's it fits the profile of him as a prophet I don't doubt that the possibility that and with uh, you know uh Harry Meyer's work who admire I really admire hi Harry um you know I do agree that it is, how do you falsify that, right? No one's going to double check Paul. You know, where's your, where's your sources, Paul? You know, where's the tablet? Where's the whatever that you wrote it down as you were up in the spirit? Um, so I, I don't uh, 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 disagree with your case here. Where I disagree or I would push back is this idea that even if Paul has fabricated these things and he's doing it in the defense of his ministry in response to kind of the rhetorical situation in chapter 10, um, he's not doing a very good job paul doubled downs on you know the worst kind of uh you know this peristasis this uh uh, suffering tribulation catalog in the history of catalogs um uh you know he, he in at the end of chapter or chapter 11 you know he's he's beaten he's uh, he's stoned, he's whipped, uh, he's shipwrecked, he's anxious all the time, he gets lowered in a basket, out of, out of wall, what's going on there? And then suddenly, oh, well, you know, he's on an ascent up to the third heaven, and he he can't tell us anything. and he We barely even know if he's there, he barely he doesn't identify himself. Oh, and then he also has this demon in his body. So if he's concocting some kind of defense um, to kind of meet or to defend himself of the kind of um uh, oratorical and uh sophistic uh, corinthian philosophical expectations that he doesn't fit this this ideal philosophical uh, uh, uh rhetor um then he's doing a horrible job i mean the work of jennifer glancy for example uh you know people say well you know soldiers in the ancient world you know they had scars they were whipped uh you know they had battle scars these things were uh, uh badges of honor but jennifer glancy in her brilliant work says well it depends on the context you know uh, a, a soldier who's facing the uh, the the enemy getting scars head, head on will be a hero but the soldier who turns around and runs away and gets slashed that's not a badge of honor that's a sign of uh weakness uh, and of course paul's uh uh the the bodily a punishment that he goes through, the punitive, uh, it's very punitive, it's very enslaved. So it's just a sort of low caste, low class kind of base, um, uh, uh dishonor. Uh, and then, of course, the, the thorn in the flesh, um, inhabiting his body, penetrating his body. Well, this, this goes against. Uh, uh hegemonic uh, uh roman masculinity right the idea that men are supposed to be sealed off they're not supposed to be penetrated they're not they're supposed to be active they're not supposed to be passive and so what this thorn does even if it's not a demon just the idea that paul's body has lost its kind of uh he's lost self-control he's lost control of his body becomes an effeminate uh, uh thing um so if, if he is, he, I mean, I do think Paul's providing a defense, but he's just not providing the type of defense which would be, which would work for an audience who's expecting someone to be a great orator. Mm-hmm. He's providing his own kind of strength and weakness defense and trying to shift the Corinthian expectation for, hey, you know what you think is strong is actually weak and what is weak is actually strong, mm-hmm. um, which is precise, precisely the message of Jesus and his death and resurrection, which she's trying to get through. It's this Mm -hmm. kind of scandal of the cross that doesn't meet uh, uh, cultural expectations of masculinity and bravery and honor.
1: Wonderful, Isaac. Okay, uh, let's move on from the thorn in the flesh to uh, circumcision. And so for before this next question, I um, <clears throat> think it's appropriate to serve up a minor content warning for our listeners uh, regarding male genitalia. Uh, for anyone in our audience who might not want to listen to a discussion like this with children around. Uh, there's nothing especially yes. graphic, I don't think, in, in what Isaac has to say, but his argument uh, involves circumcision and the phallic ideal in a measured way, uh, with this uh, being one of the possible impairments or disabilities that Paul dealt with. With. So with that out of the way, Isaac, um, I don't want to speak necessarily for your Canadian context or any other context that you uh, uh, fit in with or identify with, But um, and certainly our listeners around the globe will uh, have different cultural and personal opinions on the practice, but at least for an American audience, I think um, we live in a time when circumcision is relatively normalized. Uh, yes, uh, there are these uh, so-called intactivists, and you discuss them in your epilogue, but uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all, all still circumcise their uh, their male offspring in very Varying, to varying degrees. Um, so uh, even so, I found myself r- rather surprised and challenged in some ways by the depth of data that you bring to the foreground on circumcision in the ancient world and what you call in some cases the concepts of the phallic ideal in uh, Greco-Roman and Jewish contexts. That uh, chapter five of yours is a powerhouse <laughs> uh, yeah. on the, what you call the bestial glands. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about how you have understood this uh, ideal phallus or phallic ideal for both Jews and Greco-Romans, plus maybe the stigmas they attached to penises that did not match their ideal.
0: Yeah. So this is a very important question. At the heart of the study um, is really the idea that bodily ideals, uh, bodily ideals shift and they're subjective or relative to different cultures, right? So what is a bodily ideal in the ancient world will be a different one will be a different from today. And with circumcision male genitals in the ancient world, that's actually something where we see very clearly the relativity, depending on if you're in a Jewish culture or a non-Jewish culture, or even like a a, a Levantine um, Eastern Mediterranean culture near Syria or North Africa and the Greek and Roman world. Mm -hmm. Um, So for, of course, for ancient Jews, uh, uh, circumcision is a is a central body uh, body modification. Um, you know it is normative. Uh, it's it's uh, enabling. Uh, Saul Olian talks about uh, in his brilliant work on disability in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it was uh, practiced by Syrians, Ethiopians, a lot of different people. It's normalized for them. It's the ideal. In the Greek and Roman culture, this is definitely not the case. Um, it's the, quite the opposite. The the, pres- the preservation, and I want to be careful with my language here. The preservation of uh, a, a foreskin is reflected in almost every uh, instance uh, that we see outside of particular contexts. Like um, the only time you know the exposure of uh, the penile glands happens is in you know sexualized contexts um, or uh, humorous contexts or sometimes in um, um uh, quote-unquote monstrous uh, or barbarian context mm-hmm. um, so the 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 quote-unquote standard for greeks greeks and romans was foreskin and anything that departed from that was denigrated or made fun of uh, or you know used in a negative context and um, this is something that's often missed. And the question the, the my approach to this chapter actually began many years ago with a conversation in a seminar with uh, Mark Goodacre, and he was teaching on he he was relaying a story about teaching um, uh, in the U S when he moved over to the U S and talking about circumcision in Galatians. And a lot of his students, American students were having trouble understanding why this was a problem because of course, you know, in America, I think 80%, uh, whether you're religious or not, 80% of men uh, are are circumcised Uh, in Canada. The statistic is much lower. It's about 30%. Mm -hmm. Um, And so moving from a British context to an American context, it's hard for uh, initially, at least for, Um, many of the men studying uh, uh, the problem of circumcision in Galatians to understand the problem because they've experienced circumcision. But of course, in the ancient world, For Greeks and Romans, this is a a huge ask. Uh, In in addition to being a serious medical procedure as an adult, it's also just a serious amount of stigma to take on um, in the ancient world. You know, you know, one week you're doing business in the baths and you look normal, but then quote unquote normal. And then next week, you know, if you're part of this Galatian congregation, you've been circumcised. Okay, what's going on? You know, uh, it, it, it suggests a whole different set of uh, 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 things happening there. So that's uh, the chapter is very. Uh, in depth. Um, but I had to make a very strong case, even a visual case, uh, for the differences between the celebration of circumcision in Jewish culture and its denigration in, uh, Greco-Roman, um, visual culture.
1: Right. And so my big, my high level takeaway from, uh, from the chapter at least is that, uh, uh, Both cultures have a celebration for the virtue of temperance, and they attach temperance to their phallic ideal, Mm -hmm. which for Jews is, you know, a a circumcised penis, and for uh, Greco-Romans is a, uh, you know, a a foreskinned penis. But petite, tapered—you mm-hmm. know—an a, 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 uncircumcised penis that looks in a, a certain way. So uh, th- their ideal is uh, mm. um, th- their ideal equates for them to temperance, and anything that deviates from that equates to them equates for them to hypersexuality, vulgarity. Um, I may be using the wrong words here, but uh, some kind of barbaric deficiency almost. Yeah i mean they
0: view it as a mutilation yeah definitely. sure
1: sure so um it's interesting to me that both cultures uh, have this idea and they just uh, you know map on to different uh uh, uh uh phallic varieties i guess but anyway uh this discussion of Uh, male genitalia does lead somewhere, and so I must remind our listeners, as you do in your book, uh, Isaac, that uh, Paul refers to himself as an apostle to the foreskin, with the uh, usual translation of this term for a churchly audience uh, being uncircumcised, but uh, Mm. it's really just a euphemism for what is a very fleshy term, uh, acrobustia. Um, Basically, you argue that Paul experienced his own circumcised status, which he tells us plenty about in, you know, Philippians 3.5, for example, as a disability. Uh, among his Gentile congregations. How and why do you conceptualize this as a disability affecting Paul's sort of day-to-day interactions with his churches? I mean, he does talk about it quite a bit, but uh, do you think Paul has his and his fellow Jews circumcised status in mind when he talks about his weaknesses in you know the thorn in the flesh as one example but there are others as well. Uh, In other words, would Paul or does Paul consciously recognize his circumcised status as an impairment disability or deficiency, and can we still understand something as a disability for someone like Paul, even if he doesn't personally see it that way.
0: Yeah, thanks for bringing this up, and thanks for bringing up the, the point about uh, Paul being an apostle to the foreskin. I'm really drawing on the work on uh, on my colleagues, Karen Noodle and uh, Ryan Coleman, who has a great book uh, called Apostles of the Foreskin, uh, out, out with DeGroiter right now. Um, uh, Paul's, I don't think it necessarily, uh, the disability, a circumcision as a disability in the Greco-Roman world, uh, necessarily affects Paul explicitly in his letters um I, I think it's it is interesting how actually Paul what i what i do in the chapter is Paul actually reinforces the stigma attached to uh circumcision um which is is different than it, it, saying that it affects him it's actually um it's actually him reinforcing a disability culture mm-hmm. now how does he do that it has to do with, you talked about Philippians 3, 5, and of course, in Philippians 3, 5, Paul, you know, is celebrating uh, all of his um, a Jewish heritage, Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised mm-hmm. on the eighth day. At mm-hmm. uh, the eighth day circumcision, of course, it shows like he, it's he he's done it at the precise time of the command, um, which is different from the Galatians who are being pressured uh, or coerced into circumcising. Uh, 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 but not on the eighth day. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is two verses, three verses before in Philippians 3 2, Paul, and the way I argue, uh, Paul uh, pushes back against um, uh, Gentile Judaizers, or uh, Judaizing Gentiles rather, um, who are pushing uh, what he calls. Um, uh, mutilation, catatome. And so here he's actually doing a wordplay, catatome, versus the Greek word for circumcision, which is peritome. So he distinguishes between a Jewish circumcision, and uh, which he views as valid, and a Gentile circumcision, which he calls a mutilation. Now, for a Greco-Roman audience, this is indistinguishable. Um, so in this fact, he's reinforcing the stigma attached, and I guess reinforcing the stigma to himself uh and, and to Jewish circumcision as well. But the problem with that is, and Paul's very explicit that if Gentiles get circumcised, Galatians 5, 2, they actually cut themselves off from Christ. Um, you know, they're, they're cut off from this kind of grace and gift. Um, so not only does Paul's language of Gentile circumcision, of, of being a mutilation, kind of reinforce the wider culture of circumcision as a disability, but actually he's compelled by his gospel uh, to actually add a theological component, which is that if Gentiles do this to their bodies, if Gentile men, they're actually disabling themselves from Christ, um, which is a whole can of worms. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, and uh, so I guess moving on from uh, there, my, my my last question about uh Understanding something as disability for Paul, if he doesn't see it that way, uh, uh, this came up a few times for me. You know, um, because w- we want Paul to be explicit about what's going on in his world and with his with his body, even with his own disability. Um, did, did you have any problems uh, identifying a disability that Paul might not have himself identified with?
0: Um, So this is the first year of my PhD, thinking about this question, because one of the the questions I was reticent about was uh, this very question of anachronism. Am I being anachronistic by attributing a disability in the past, which the author, intended author or writer does not understand themselves. Um, And the conclusion that I came up with was that disability is a process that happens whether we're aware of it or not. Hmm. Um, So Paul is probably aware of uh, uh, the stigmas and the othering that happens with the disabilities in his uh, work, which is precisely why he uses it at, you know, in two Corinthians 12 um, in, uh, uh, in one Corinthians with uh, his short stature. Um, but I don't personally say a problem with, even if Paul doesn't understand it, I mean, he does not understand disability like we understand it today. So sure, the first Like, you know, he doesn't, he would not understand the kind of theoretical framework. But that doesn't mean that that theoretical framework is inappropriate. I'm not arguing that Paul understands disability the same way as we do today. That yeah. would be an anachronistic argument. Sure. But I am saying that our ability to reflect on the phenomenon of disability in its various contexts is actually can be applied, not impressed, but implied to <clears throat> Paul's circumstances for us to understand even what Paul might not understand himself. Um, so in a way, I guess, I, I suppose... It's an offshoot of a kind of reception history or working history of this text that if we think about it with disability, that there are some um, uh, a new uh, valences and uh, uh, things that are generated from that interaction. Yeah. So okay. It's an important question.
1: Uh, thank you for explaining that. And uh, I, I hope uh, I didn't uh, uh, seem as though I was um, attributing to you a tendency to make Paul like a modern thinker or something like that. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't hear that tendency in, in your in your work at all. Um, but anyway, uh, the third disability that you identify Paul may have lived with is his short stature, or basically, you know, a height that uh, might have stood out negatively among his contemporaries. And uh, um, uh, of course, as you note, his, uh, his name, Latin uh, Paulus, means little, but you don't rely on this alone, and you instead appeal to Paul's, uh, Paul's physical description in the late second century Acts of Paul and Thecla, as well as Paul's own recollection of an episode where he escaped apprehension in Damascus by being let down in a basket outside uh, the city wall. And he, uh, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 11. So, right here in, in uh, the same uh, uh, um, uh, ballpark. Can you say a little bit about the three pieces that contribute to conceptualizing Paul as someone who was short in stature, and furthermore, why that would have marked him? as disabled in his ancient context. And also, I should say here, uh, you, you appeal to a lot of, of uh, de- depictions of Paul, artistic depictions, that are somewhat later, but they trend in a certain direction. And maybe, maybe you can describe how Paul appears in these uh, 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 iconographic portraits of him.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, let me first say that I was pressured by my publisher to include the last three sections, uh, uh, the last chapters of uh, this book by, uh, so thank you to reviewer two who decided to <laughs> add 40,000 words to this book. Um, uh, this is the most playful set of chapters, I think, and it's it's definitely, I, I don't expect to convince everyone, but uh, finding this constellation between the basket and uh paul's description in the acts of paul and thecla in uh sections two and three uh and then triangulating it in conversation with ancient iconography um it's really just getting us to think a little bit deeply about um <clears throat> how we can uh, clever ways of mining information right um i do remember when i had this idea i was probably sitting on my couch in durham my kids were climbing all over me and i was reading through this passage in 2 corinthians 11 and i thought well how how small do you have to be to fit into a basket to get down the wall, right? I'm not a physics person, um, but I have a wild imagination. So I was thinking, well, what would this look like? So I started to look through iconography of this depiction and it's actually hilarious the the way that, uh, and I don't want to be disrespectful to the icons, but it's hilarious the way that some of the icons offset the proportionality, right? So because they picture Paul as a full human then the basket and Paul are like almost the size of the wall itself, <laughs> Um, Or, you know, you know, there'll be little manuscripts, and it'll be the depiction of him being lowered in the basket and the baskets tiny, and his body is proportionate above the basket, but there's no way in the world (laughs) that he could possibly fit in there. So I started to think and then I remember, you know, his description in the Acts of Paul and thought, Okay, well, it describes him as being short. That's very, very strange. His name means short. so. Um, So so from there, I I kind of have a labored argument towards Paul being short statured in the ancient world, of course, I mean, average height is this this kind of average height. Uh, becomes noticeable especially the the shorter you get so short stature and uh people with dwarfism and i i want to clarify the term there it's not a i don't mean dwarfism in the in the kind of contemporary diagnosis term but ancient in the ancient world they use what would be considered um uh unkind terms today of dwarfs and pygmies this is the greek language to describe uh short stature people as very short short stature people in the ancient world Mm. and Often, uh, 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 these figures are kind of um, objectified, they're instrumentalized, they're made fun of for their height, and being short is kind of a talking point. so there's a lot of stigma around there, uh, and there are also, but also people with short stature are used for humor. So one of the analogies I draw is uh, the use of um, short-statured pugilists, so boxers in the ancient world. You know, a lunchtime matinee. You know, them going out and 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 fighting with one another, and kind of, you know, it's a humorous time. It's violent, uh, but it's a humorous time because uh, of these short-statured people. And of course, we see that stigmatization uh today the use of short stature people's bodies uh for the butt to be the butt of a joke i'm thinking of two examples now it's a christmas season uh i'm thinking of the movie elf uh, and one of the characters in elf i won't ruin the scene one of the characters in elf is an author who has short stature and the whole scene and structure of it is built around him being uh uh short um, and I, I actually stopped the movie with my kids and when we watched that and I explained to them the problems with this scene. Another scene that I'm thinking of, um, which I would not watch with my children is from the Wolf of Wall Street um, by Martin Scorsese. And one of the scenes involves a um, very controversial and horrible scene of uh, some of the main characters tossing uh, short-statured people um, uh, who are wearing helmets onto a target and they kind of stick there. Um, and But this is a kind of continuation, the the stigmatization and I would say harm and violence towards um, people with short stature. So in the ancient world, we see similar cultures like that. And so Paul takes advantage of this in his own letters, I think, and possibly um, uh, because of his own height, whether we can know specifically what his height is debatable. Um, but I, I do think that some of the evidence can be used to argue for as something that people would have noticed and would have made fun of.
1: And uh, I should say here that you uh, cite plenty of scholars who uh, uh, are skeptical about the possibility of using the Acts of Paul of Thecla uh, to um, reconstruct Paul as a as a as a shorter person, and and so um, uh, there are plenty of resources in these forty thousand words or so that had to be added to your book. <laughs> there are plenty of resources for scholars to uh, come to uh, their own conclusion. Even though I think it's nice that you do indulge this argument, the, the, I've never thought about the physicality of what the basket had to look like for a, a, an adult male to <laughs> be lowered down, uh, down the, the city walls, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, uh, this, is a, this is something that's going to sit with me for a while, I think. Um, but if you're right that Paul lives with these three disabilities of demonization, circumcision, and uh, short stature, um, it's interesting that he deals literarily with them in different ways. So as you say in your conclusion, he transforms the weakness of his body that some in Corinth criticize into strength. Uh, whereas he leans into the stigma about circumcision by treating Gentiles who submit to this Jewish practice with uh, contempt, and he says, you know, they're cut off from the promise, and perhaps he leans into short stature for rhetorical purposes uh, in a few ways, as you say in in uh, one of your later chapters. <laughs> I guess I, I'm curious if uh, in this question you can reflect on Paul's kind of uh, approach to disability and uh, whether this is an enigmatic portrait of the Apostle Paul for you to have uh, with respect to disability. Uh, to what extent would you consider him an ally for people living with disabilities? And if you'd like to bring in with how he you know, plays up shortness as well, that would be fine. But uh, uh, ref- do you have any personal reflections on uh, on Paul's uh, I, I, enigmatic, is this the word that comes to my mind, enigmatic dealing with disability.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, understanding Paul as a disabled apostle is opaque, um, which is probably why I try to overdo it in trying to ground my work in uh, the sources. Um, but it is always opaque. I think the one one Takeaway for Paul being an ally to people with disability today is just to, um, I mean, reinforce for readers, even if, you know, scholars or readers don't buy the particular disabilities I think I argue that he might have. I think just thinking about this kind of central figure, this key person in developing early Christianity as dis- disabled and being a person with disability, I think is important in itself um, because you know, there's a lot of conversations today about uh, race, ethnicity, of gender, of sexuality, but disability is often um, uh, 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 ignored uh, or maligned or kind of, you know, it's it's kind of other-othered. It's a kind of um, <clears throat> compounding marginalization. And so I think to have a figure like Paul really recognized that uh, as a person uh, uh, with a disability, I think bolsters a lot of the work that disability philosophers and theologians and people in religious communities are trying to do uh, to really serve uh the many members and, and many congregants and and many people in their community who have disabilities. Um and so I think that's uh how I see him being a little bit of uh, an ally. Um he's also a cautionary tale. So you mentioned about him playing up his short stature in his letters, uh, but then also his use of And it's actually his stereotyped use of circumcision in his letters. You know, the the kind of idea that he allocates ethnicities uh, based on uh, uh, genital forms, right? So the the Gentiles are the foreskin and uh, the Jews are the circumcision. This is really reductive kind of um, Mm. uh, uh, androcentric uh, anatomical language. Mm -hmm. So he's also a cautionary tale on the fact that even though he might be a person with disabilities, um, people with disabilities... Can because of whatever inherent ableism or societal enculturation can reproduce the stigma that reinforces their own disability. And in Paul's case, with him playing up his short stature and kind of it keys in with um, his description of himself as, I, I talked about in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, as, you know, uh, beating, his, enslaving his body and beating his body into enslavement, it it kind of touches uh, on issues of um, self-harm. And, you know, is Paul really the best example for uh, bodily care? And one of my colleagues, uh, Grace Emmett, um, Dr. Grace Emmett, who's got a great book, a great uh, thesis on Paul and masculinity, and doing some work on Paul and trauma, uh, is really thinking about this area of Paul and um, self-harm. And, you know, so while on the one hand, it's a, it's a complex portrait of disability, someone who is experiencing it, someone who maybe is pushing back against it or trying to understand it on a theological level, but then also someone who's wrestling with um, you know, reproducing it and, um, and, and uh, perhaps exacerbating uh, some of those negative disability cultures.
1: Hey, uh, Paul is a complex person, and uh, uh, the, your response illustrates that perfectly. Um, uh, Isaac, for my last major question here, uh, I want to pose to you a challenge that i recently started in in my new books. Conversations with Richard Askoff, whose work on Paul you may know, uh, uh, Paul and uh, uh, Greco-Roman associations. This has evolved for me from a series of wired videos on YouTube, where experts in a particular field are asked to frame their knowledge for different audiences at like sort of increasing levels of difficulty, from a first grader or con- kindergartner up to uh, you know fellow scholars in their field. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not gonna ask you to explain Paul to a, a first grader right now, but uh, <laughs> <Please don't. laughs> seeing as uh, we serve a variety of publics at, New Books, at the NewBooks Network, I uh, have adapted this challenge to say uh, that, um, well, to ask if you're wanting to distill your contributions to this uh, constellation of Pauline studies and disability studies, for, uh, first, church-going laypersons, you know, who have an interest in Paul, uh, uh, pastors for students such as an advanced undergraduate or, you know, a beginning grad student, and finally, for specialists in the field or in the Guild of Biblical Studies who may or may not be Pauline uh, specialists themselves. Um, you can focus on different aspects of, uh, of your contributions if you'd like, and I know that uh, for uh, people in the field, you want to kind of diffuse an ableist assumption about Paul that uh, some in previous generations, at least, and it's probably ongoing today still, uh, have carried with them in their work on Paul. So, uh, how would you characterize the novel contributions of your work for these different audiences? And what do you hope they take away from uh, your study?
0: Yeah, I think two things here. Um, this is really important, of course, communicating uh, to our publics. The first thing is that there is, at least over the last half century, there's been a ton of work. Um, by uh, disabled scholars, disabled philosophers, theologians, biblical scholars uh, talking about disability and their experience, talking about disability and the Bible, and especially uh, uh, Paul. And so there's a ton of resources there. And if my work is just simply uh, a kind of sign pointing to the the dearth uh, of uh, work that's being done and continues to be done, that's very, very important, that showcases the uh, uh, lives and agency and experience of people with disabilities, then I, that, that's, a, that's a big thing. Those resources are there. Access them, engage with them, um, for, for, for no other reason uh, other than to um, think about the disability and not think with them as kind of instrument, instrumentalizing uh, these people, but, um, but to, to think about early Christian figures and early Christian texts as embodied people. I talked about earlier jokingly about thinking about Paul, you know, as this kind of floating brain and people laugh about it, but we, but most of the effort that people spend with Paul is thinking about what he thinks. Mm-hmm. Um But when we start to think about embodiment in people, then, and of all characters in the new Testament early Christian literature, um, then it not only provides a new aspect, but it actually, I think it fundamentally taps into something more truly human Um, that, where you need to break free from this kind of um, uh, mind body uh, dichotomy that privileges these kind of mental thoughts, uh, forgetting the fact that these uh, thoughts are generated in conversation with bodies in their wider context. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm a big one of my mentors and good friends, and uh, 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 a big appreciator of Canada Moss. And, you know, Canada Moss's recent work, her forthcoming book, um, is about. Uh, thinking about the bodies through which these thoughts are coming. So enslaved secretaries and, 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 and enslaved literate workers. And highlighting these circumstances, it's not just a matter of justice, I think. You know We need to recover these people in the past who have been ignored and forgotten and erased. Um, but it's actually also about fundamentally understanding our own humanity. In my work, when I think about Paul in conversation with disability in the ancient world, and thinking about bodies, it's also made me reflect on my own body and my own experiences, and um, helped me be more attuned uh, to uh, humans and their embodiment, and um, you know the kind of uh, and negative things that can happen if we if we're not paying attention to that.
1: Wonderful, Isaac. And uh, when you say that the resources are there, <laughs> I love a good footnote. And so I was I was, uh, you know, like a kid in a ball pit, uh, enjoying all, all of the uh, uh, citations that you have. And uh, uh, when you say the citation or the resources are there in all of the modern research languages, you are in some serious depth. So I commend you for that effort that you uh, went to for for that. Um, now, Isaac, we've just condensed this um Meticulously researched, excellent, mature uh, book of yours into about an hour, maybe a little bit more as I'm looking at the clock here. And inevitably, there will be facets of it that we didn't properly uh, address. So, is there anything else that you'd like to make sure your listeners or the listeners to this episode hear about? Or maybe would you like to share with us, uh, uh, with the audience, what you'll be working on next or what you're working on now?
0: Yeah, um, I'm sure I can share a little bit about what I'm working on now. I'm working on a couple of different projects. One is a project on literate workers that's in early Christianity and thinking about um, the lives and histories and embodiments of uh, secretaries enslaved and otherwise in the generation of early Christian literature up to the sixth century. Um, I'm also working on a book on uh, portraits of um, early Christian figures whose bodies kind of defy the norm um, uh, and behave in ways that uh, we we don't typically uh, uh, well that they don't typically behave in. So one one. Uh, example is from the depiction of uh, mary jesus's mother in the proto-gospel or the proto-evangelion of james um where uh actually someone's hand gets burnt off in an encounter with her Mm -hmm. um and so thinking about these bodies thinking about how they shift and are shaped by early christians and the kinds of ideologies and theologies uh, uh, that come out of them. So essentially my work is thinking about, uh, people and their bodies and what we can know about them and the world that they live in. Wonderful.
1: Okay. Isaac, well, thank you so much for your time today, uh, for your work on, you know, early Christian texts and Paul and disability studies. And thank you for being our guest on the new books network.
0: Yeah, thanks. It's re- it's been a real pleasure. Uh, uh, absolutely.
1: Uh, again, uh, Dr. Soon's book is, uh, a disabled Apostle, Impairment and Disability in the Letters of Paul, and it's available now from Oxford University Press, wherever quality books are sold. Isaac, I wish you great success with this book, and I hope people are interacting with it or starting to interact with it. Um, I have been Rob Heaton, for uh, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for new books in Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thanks. Bye-bye.